0: Good evening, listeners. It's September 24th, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 PM, and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of
1: Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Cobb, And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about the awesome things happening at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out more about the up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
0: Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Harrison Steerwalt, a PhD student in kinesiology in the College of Public Health and Human Sciences. He's studying insulin resistance in the Translational Metabolism Research Laboratory. Hey, Harrison, thanks for joining us tonight.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do?
2: Yeah, so like Lily said, I'm a PhD student in the Translational Metabolism Research Lab, which is quite the mouthful, so we just usually end up saying the TMRL lab. Um, But our lab really focuses on studying skeletal muscle physiology and how that may change in states of disease or in response to exercise. Because exercise really seems to be a potent stimulus for of combating some of this dysfunction that can happen in disease states for skeletal muscle for really almost every type of disease state it's really pretty remarkable
0: so you mentioned that you're studying insulin resistance and so how does this relate to the exercise component as well as the skeletal muscle physiology how does this all fit together
2: so I'll kind of take a step back and and just kind of generally say so after somebody eats a meal Insulin is released from the pancreas. And what that does is insulin triggers your body to start taking blood sugar from your blood into your skeletal muscles. So it helps regulate your blood sugar, which is really important. Um, And when you exercise, uh, there's also a stimulus that will help regulate blood sugar. Um, But in this states of insulin resistance, like you mentioned, this action becomes somewhat impaired. And what ends up happening is you see a chronically elevated level of blood sugar, and this may eventually lead to uh, what's probably most commonly known type 2 diabetes, if it stays elevated for a really long time. But insulin re- resistance also puts individuals at predisposition for other th- other diseases such as cancer or uh, cardiovascular disease. So it's really a heavily researched topic, um, and even though it's extremely heavily researched for decades, we still really we know things that happen that contribute to insulin resistance, but we don't really know exactly you know what happens because physiology is so complicated.
1: And so do you think it's uh just one one trigger that uh causes insulin resistance or is really the complexity because there are just so many different things going on in your in a person's body that may cause this?
2: You just said it perfectly. So, I mean, really in physiology, you can't say any any one thing is caused by just one chemical reaction or something that happens. Uh really it's you, a stimulus is formed and it just sends off a signaling cascade where it just goes down the chain and just ends up millions and millions of things are happening that cause an adaptation or a dysfunction.
1: Okay. So let's zoom in a little bit then. What part of the chain in this like whole metabolism cycle or uh, metabolism processing of sugar are you focused on for insulin resistance?
2: Sure. So. What my specific uh, projects are going on right now, I'm looking at a protein that's called RAC1. So this protein called RAC1 is, we believe, is pretty heavily involved in uh, the regulation of glucose or your blood sugar. Um, Because what happens is once you have a release of insulin or muscle contraction, we see this activation of this protein called RAC1. And when it becomes activated, it actually has a way of reorganizing the com- components of the cell that allow different proteins to move more freely through the cell cuz if you think of a cell a lot of people think it's just like a cytoplasm and things are just kind of floating around in there but realistically it's kind of it's chunky soup uh, it's really hard for things to move around in there so what rack 1 does is it helps reorganize it so things can travel freely specifically what we're interested in is this protein that's called Glucose Transporter 4 or GLUT4. And what that protein does is it allows sugar from the blood to transfer into the skeletal muscle where it might be stored or it could be metabolized for energy.
0: So in states of insulin resistance, this RAC1 protein, it becomes dysfunctional?
2: So there has been previous research that showed a decreased activation of RAC1 when in response to states of insulin resistance. Some, some research has looked at uh, situations in or stations in cells where you're looking at skeletal muscles and they essentially create an environment that's similar to an insulin-resistant state by basically blasting cells with forms of lipids or, or fats. And you can also see in individuals who or mice that are obese, that are insulin resistant, have also shown a decreased activation of RAC1. Um, but even though we've seen this decrease of activation in RAC1 in these states, there it's still pretty unknown what actually causes this decrease in activation. So that's kind of more what we're looking into, what actually causes it and why.
0: So you mentioned lipids or fats and so When you're studying this obesity-induced insulin resistance, is this sort of propagation of lipids, is this a symptom of that obesity-induced insulin resistance? Is that something you
1: see?
2: Yeah, so what actually happens when uh, an individual is is obese is they basically fill their stores of fats or lipids in their adipose tissue. And when they fill those stores, you actually kind of see a spill out of lipids into the bloodstream, and then it eventually starts getting stored in places like the liver and skeletal muscle. And when you see in skeletal muscle uh, the increase of lipids, then that's when you actually start to see symptoms of insulin resistance. There's a study done in the past where they actually took lean individuals who are insulin sensitive, and they basically infused them with lipids, and within, three to four hours they showed signs of insulin resistance. And what the main what the major association was they saw an increase in their lipids and their skeletal muscle, and that's when they started to show signs of insulin resistance.
0: So lipid metabolism in this cellular study is really complex. And how are you actually studying this in the lab?
2: So it's lipids are still it's still kind of a learning Environment for research. It's because they're extremely complex. I mean, lipids can be synth- synthesized from a lot of different pathways and they can also be degraded into specific subspecies from a lot of different pathways. So it's really, really complex. So the best that we're doing in research right now is basically association, looking at content and getting an idea of, okay, this lipid probably came from this pathway and seeing an association with this is a really high content, and we're seeing a decreased activation of a certain protein. So, what we're going to be doing, or what we did, is we did, we used uh, CMLS, it's a chromatography, mass, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. It's another mouthful, That's why we call it LCMS. Uh, <laughs> so, what that does is it tells us we'll take a tissue sample and it'll tell us how much lip how what's the content of lipids in that tissue and what we do is we use an internal standard that has a specific type of lipid that we're interested in and that's a way to target specific subspecies cuz even still it's kind of a it's kind of a newer technique and it's still kind of in, improving its validity and reliability
1: and so the tissue is coming from an obese mouse, for example. And you would get a signal from your mass spectrometry measuring lipids of higher lipids, perhaps, in that fat mouse tissue. Mm -hmm. And then you'd also look for, at the same time, a association with lower RAC1 activity?
2: Exactly, yeah. So, So we see an increased content of lipids in the skeletal muscle. And that's one aspect of the analysis, like you said. And what we do is we actually harvest an entire muscle. So we're specifically looking at the quadricep muscles. And these, I mean, a quadricep muscle is around 200 milligrams. And these assays really require very, very little bit. Like the g assay, which is what we use to actually measure RAC1 activity, is a, takes five milligrams. So you can do a ton of stuff with that amount, that weight, um, but yeah, so you take the tissue and you aliquot it out and you freeze it down. Once you're ready to use it, you do the analysis on it.
0: So you also you use mouse tissue as well as human tissue? So yeah, different studies.
2: Yes, yeah, so uh, right now we're still in the process of doing our first human study at Oregon State. Um, so if anybody is interested in checking it out, you can always look at our website and you can see how to get involved. But uh, So right now we are doing an acute exercise study Um, But that is basically just in the stage of collecting samples and doing the study, and we're not actually to the point of analyzing any of that tissue yet. So right now, we're just looking on the aspect of skeletal muscle cells as well as uh, mouse muscle.
1: And that uh, link to the webpage where you can learn more about that part, the human aspect of the study, is also on our blog uh, about this episode. I just want to remind the listeners that you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis and we're sitting down with Harrison Sturwatt from Kinesiology and he's talking to us about insulin resistance and exercise in human physiology, also mouse physiology. Uh, Harrison, I wanted to take kind of a broad overview of this or maybe like a step into the future, say five years from now when you guys have already analyzed all the mouse muscle tissue and then this human study as well. Like what are some of the big, uh, big things that can come out big findings that could potentially come out of this or therapies or treatments for uh, insulin
2: resistance? Mm-hmm. So right now it's kind of at the beginning stage is just finding out what, what is actually happening when someone's insulin resistant. Cause like I said, we still don't really have a good idea for that, but as we better understand what happens in the dysfunctional state, we can better target that for effective treatments for in the future because every person is different. And the way medicine is kind of going towards is some people some people respond really well to say exercise. And then you actually have people who don't respond to exercise. And they may respond better to a form of treatment or a form of uh, prescription. And the way medicine is kind of evolving is you're hopefully you're going to have like this kind of individual treatment plan where you respond really well to exercise, but we'll also give you this medication to help kind of bolster the effects to help give you a um, good effect on improving your health and improving a dysfunction. So that's kind of the very general description because it's still in the very early stage, but. That's where hopefully medicine is kind of moving towards to give a better treatment plan for the individual because everybody's so different.
0: And I think another thing is um, it seems like a potential benefit from this is to understand why it is that exercise is so beneficial for individuals who are diabetic or pre-diabetic.
2: Correct. So that is a very good point. So that's one of the things that we're actually looking at in our human study. Uh, the effect of acute exercise. Because as we said in the very beginning, exercise really seems to be a potent stimulus for a lot of dysfunctional states or a lot of disease states. And there's actually been research that shows that somebody who is insulin resistant, if they get up and do a very basically moderate exercise, which is, I'll say it's a about half of your VO2 max. So if you think of a VO2 max, it's your, as hard as you can possibly exercise until you are basically like falling on the floor. Um, It's about half that. So if you basically just get up and walk around for a while, that actually has some improvements of insulin sensitivity. So really, I mean, it's, it's so beneficial just to get some form of exercise and to just be active. So we encourage individuals just to get up and walk around and basically just do as much as you can.
1: Well, that brings, that kind of connects us into your past a little bit. So I was thinking maybe you could tell us how you really got, uh, start, got your start in exercise science.
2: Sure. Um, so it kind of boils back to, uh, I took my first anatomy and physiology class in high school and that was what really got me interested immediately into the human body. Um, and from there it kind of just increased as I continued to learn more about physiology because really the, how adaptable the human body is really just astounding to me. Um, just if you are exercising or not exercising, your body really kind of, your body really changes and it's pretty remarkable. Um, so that kind of led me to do a undergraduate and master's degree in exercise science. And from there, I kind of ended up, um, going into the field of strength conditioning, uh, where I worked for a few years, um, and there I was mostly doing like performance testing, uh, working with athletes and people who are very high level. Um, but I kind of decided that it wasn't necessarily the field for me just because it did have challenges to help me grow as a person. But it, I wanted to get deeper into what was happening because it's very surface level. You give somebody a stimulus and either they improve or they don't improve, you don't really have a way to find out exactly what was happening under the surface.
0: Yeah. And I think that underscores also why a lot of people end up going to graduate school, which Mm -hmm. is to understand the underlying mechanism of an observation, um, instead of just uh, sort of the superficial approach.
2: Sure. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I mean, it's just it's just super cool to read about something that's unknown and to think of ways to answer it. I mean, that's probably I mean, that's exactly why all of us are here. So, so
1: you had kind of like this research drive. You wanted to ask your own questions, get involved with an experiment, mm-hmm. do some statistics, and actually have proof of or support for your ideas. Sure. Uh, how? What was the transition transition like though? Because it sounds like you're um, your performance testing in that kind of career that you had before very different than what you're doing now. Uh, was there a little, like a little transition that kind of pushed you over the edge? Look, did you, uh, was it finding the program that kind of pushed you in the direction?
2: Yeah. So I always, like I said, I was always interested in human physiology and I wanted to more kind of work for improving general human health. Um, and, Really what it was is I was looking around at different programs and um, looking for instructors or professors that were doing research that I was interested in, and I spoke with a professor here who was retiring and asked him about his research, and he's like, well, I'm retiring, so I'm not taking students, but here are these two new professors that are coming in, and this is their research, and if you think it's interesting, you should contact them. So I read the description of both of my advisors, uh, Sean Newsom and Matt Robinson, the research that they were planning on doing in the lab that they were gonna be starting because they haven't been at Oregon State for long. And it really kind of, it, it excited me to understand the physiology and to know what it is about exercise that can help improve individuals in a disease state is really something that kind of excited me. So I emailed them and Talked to both of them on the phone, and and uh, once I once I had talked to them on the phone, I I was pretty much sealed. I wanted to work with them because they were they were both so brilliant, and they really had a way of getting getting anyone they were talking to excited about it because they were so excited about what they're doing, and they were so excited to get a lab started and get some research going, and really just all around they're pretty awesome people. So after I talked to him on the phone, it was, I knew where I wanted to go.
0: So you mentioned that you, you already had your master's degree once Mm -hmm. you started your PhD and can you speak to sort of the advantage that having a master's, um, gave you coming into a PhD program versus how you think it might've been coming straight from an undergrad to a PhD for you?
2: Sure. So probably the, the most, obvious one is I mean you you already have an idea of what a graduate course is going to be like um, as well as you know having a knowing what graduate school is like it's very different from undergraduate where um, you don't really necessarily talk to the professor very much but in graduate school you have a very close relationship and it's a very it's a much smaller environment where in undergrad you may have classes that have multiple hundred people and graduate school, it's a very small, maybe a big class is like 20 people. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is knowing what, what it's actually like in grad school. And, and, uh, the nice thing about having a master's before is I got to transfer a ton of credits. So, <laughs> so that's always a plus. No small thing. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, now, so you're two years into your PhD starting second year, starting second year, yeah. starting second year into it, of your PhD program. Uh, any thoughts for the future?
2: Oh, uh,
1: no, you have a pile of mount, a mountain of work to do before yeah, of then. Course, but yeah. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, you know, I, I really enjoy academia. I really enjoy teaching and doing research. So right now that's kind of the idea that I'll end up going in academia and going that route but who knows I mean there's I've got three to four more years here so that could change and it might not so but that's kind of the idea now so I really enjoy the environment of academia
0: one thing stepping back into the research component and I don't think we address this is uh, one one aspect that I found really interesting is the idea of picking a standardized model Um, so for your mouse model, it's actually an obese, it's mimicking an obesity state. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Sure. So what we end up doing is, uh, we put these mice on two different diets and we give them either a high fat diet or a low fat diet. And throughout 12 weeks, they end up quite plump. (laughs) Uh, they're pretty, they're pretty adorable. Um, But with that, we do insulin testing and glucose testing as we go through the weeks, and that helps us verify, just so we have data, that they are, in fact, insulin resistant. And we use that to study these disease states or this dysfunctional state and what actually causes it, Uh, because with research, you always have to prove, you know, have a good reason why you're doing something, and it has to be ethical, of course, and It wouldn't be uh, very ethical to feed food to people. So, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah. But, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of the reason we do the model. And and it's, and it's pretty great. They have pretty good lives. They hang out in a cage and they eat food and they hang out with each other. They really enjoy it. (laughs) It's awesome. All
1: right. Well, we're getting close to the end. Any more questions, Lily?
0: Now, uh, so we have a couple of traditions on our show that we want to talk about. Um, So the first one is our advice that we like to have our guests ask. Um, And this is to geared towards yourself at an earlier point or maybe an incoming graduate student.
2: Sure. So something that always kind of rang true with me after I did it um, was never be afraid to change your career path because, because you've invested time in it. Um, after being in the strength and conditioning field for a couple of years, I was like, Oh, well maybe I, I mean, I've already got time invested in this. Maybe I should just stick with it, but it wasn't giving me the, um, what I actually needed to be happy with a job. Um, and it wasn't feeding my, my, uh, what's the word, um, curiosity, curiosity. Exactly. Thank you. Um, so I made the decision to change it and I couldn't be happier even though it was kind of scary because uh, I already had a bunch of time invested in another field and I was going into something that was very foreign to me. Um, so I would I would say that for advice. Never be afraid to make a shift in your life even if you have time invested in something.
0: That's really important, I think, for everyone to remember. Absolutely.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And it sounds like you've had a pretty good go of it. Changing your career path, but also coming into a lab that's very supportive, where you have other graduate students who are helping you as well.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Our lab is a pretty great environment.
1: <laughs> and yeah. it one thing um, is that it
0: sounds like your transition to the lab that you're in that was quite a um, a learning curve, really, <laughs> to get adapted to the new wet lab situation. Yeah, it's that's definitely uh, a challenge.
2: Yeah. So they. My advisors, they brought two students in and each had their own strength For me, it was I came in with a lot of experience working with people and so I'm in charge of our our human research study and our other my other cohort, my lab partner, she came in with a lot of experience working with cells and wet lab skills, so we kind of work off each other's strengths and uh, she's helped me a lot, and I've helped her a little bit um, <laughs> but Yeah, I did have a very steep learning curve coming in and learning all the wet lab stuff, but it's actually, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's cool learning new things. So, I mean, I'm biased, but I enjoy (laughs) it.
1: Definitely takes a team. Yeah. Uh, And then our last tradition is for you to provide us a song at your request. Sure. Uh, Can you tell us what the song is that you picked and why?
2: Yeah, uh, I, I picked the, the chain by Fleetwood Mac and honestly it's, um, it's just kind of my, just kind of my jam. <laughs> I really enjoy the song, um, and uh, and I'll go to another side of it. Uh, I'm a huge superhero fan, um, and that's on one of the soundtracks for Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And right. and uh, yeah, so there's multiple reasons, but it's just a great song, and I really enjoy it.
1: I also kind of saw a connection because we were talking about the chain of events that happen in <laughs> insulin and sugar process or sugar metabolism, so it kind of goes with the theme a little bit. Sure,
2: absolutely. yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> well, here it is then. Uh, we've got Fleetwood Mac, The Chain, and um, and Harrison Stirwatt from Department of Kinesiology, College of Public Health and Human Sciences. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me. It's good. good talking to you guys. Yeah,
1: thanks for coming on. And you're listening to KBVR, Corvallis 88.7 FM. This is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on every Sunday at 7.